I'm Fine, written and narrated by Julie Stevens and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. This poem is called I'm Fine. I have MS, I've had it for about 25 years. People ask you, how are you? And my general reply is, I'm fine, but really, there's other things going on inside that I just don't talk about. And this is the poem I wrote. It's called, I'm fine. You look well. I'm fine. I'm wearing my new boots. I'm fine. I washed my hair. I'm fine. I'm wearing my favourite top. I'm fine. She's gone. I look fine. She can't see. I want to tear down the trees, rip up all the grass, crush the fence surrounding me, kick all the people out of here. I'm a raging monster, but to her, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. You look good. I'm fine. You okay? I'm fine. Repeat, repeat, repeat. I'm fine. I'm on the verge of drowning but I'm fine. I'm thrashing in a raging sea, but I'm fine. I'm staring death in the face, but to you, I'm fine. I'm the quiet one who's always fine. I'm the one with a smile on her face, so I'm fine. I'm the one who laughs, so I'm fine. I'm walking a tightrope, but I'm fine. I'm wading in mud, but I'm fine. I'm buried in sand, but to you, I'm fine. I'm the one who lies. I'm the one who laughs. I'm the one who lies. I'm the one who smiles. I'm the one who lies. I'm the one who cries behind your back. I'm so not fine. You don't see the real me. You don't feel the hurt. You don't see the frustration. You don't see the anger. I want to rip the heart out of my life. I want to jump off the highest bridge. I want to swallow a thousand pills. I'm screaming for help. But to you, I'm fine. Age, written and narrated by Isabel Cook and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Etched and weathered in every line, the polished face once so fine, is pitted and sagging with fallen chin, is wizened and wrinkled very thin, but beautifully sculptured on fine bones sit, with eyes bright and finely lit. It holds a thousand stories aged and worn, never unhappy, never forlorn, bright as a button with mind to match, as tough as a tank with batten down hatch. She may be old and weather worn, but she smiles a lot, never shows her scorn. She finishes the crossword, but slower now, with wit and charm very much on show. Her mind lingers on as she sits still. There's more to do, and she will fulfil. The last dance danced a while ago. She is heavy-footed and very slow. She is a lifelong cherished character, like a delicate structure, easy to fracture. But a smile lights up any crowded room, like the sun lifting from the clouded gloom. For her, it's nearly the end of the day, but her presence will linger when she's gone away. The Twilight Years, written and narrated by Helen O'Mahony and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. When I get old, I don't want to grow cold. 
All frosty and fusty and grim, it's important to feel like I'm me. I don't want to dress up in twin sets and pearls, crimpling slacks or Velcro booties. I won't be wearing voluminous bloomers in pastel pink lilac or blue. No flesh-coloured stockings or wrinkly old tights. No corsets or garters or stays. No tight curly perm or startling blue rinse. No lacquer, no set, no thank you. I prefer a pink buzz cut and naughty tattoo. No hairnets or bed socks or flannelette nighties or rollers like Andy Cap's wife. No dentures and tumblers all gleaming and white, smirking and grinning throughout the night. I want to stay youthful inside my own head, no matter how ancient I get. I still want to party and travel and learn, go out in the rain and get wet, to dance in the snow and stroll on the beach with warm sand under my feet. Picnics and drinkies sitting under the trees, a blanket spread out on the grass, no genteel sweet sherry in the daintiest glass. I'm more of a cava girl, me. Just open a bottle and give me a straw, or maybe a large G&T. I won't be shocked by the swearing, or a bit of old sex on TV. No smelling salts needed for me, for a gajuza's bare-naked nudity. I won't be a delicate flower, blushing and tutting and always offended. No pursing my lips or rolling my eyes, or passing away in a horrified faint when language is rough round the edges. I will bleep right along with the best, and might put your ears to the test. Don't see myself joining the WI, parish council or ladies who lunch. I won't insist on a best china cup, rattling a dance in the saucer. A mug and a brew will always suffice, and one of those biscuits called nice. No doilies, no coasters, no frills and no fuss. Life's much too short to be twee. Not formal or awkward or stiff. I want my time filled full of glee. Colours and music and fun and surprise, with mixing of ages, the old and the new. Not stuck in stale habits and set in my ways, but adventures and spreading my wings. I want to be honest. I want to be wise. I want independence. I want to be close. I still want to feel like I'm me. So when I gaze in the mirror, I might look more wrinkled. My memory might not be the best, but laughter's forever and books are a gift and fresh air and nature are free. So with all of these things and a dear friend or two, I know I will always stay me. Baby on the Way was written and is narrated by Alice Golding. Enjoy! I'm dreaming I'm in a boat. I'm in a boat which seems to be sinking. It's full of water and my legs are all wet. But the water is warm. I don't like this feeling and I don't think I'm asleep. I open my eyes and wonder why my nightie is ringing wet. I reach for the light and it flickers on. My eyes take a moment to adjust to the brightness and then I look down and see it's spilt everywhere. Just everywhere. Like in the Dam Busters film, I have burst the Mona Dam. My waters run off the bed in rivulets pink fluids soaking through the sheets and dripping on my brand new cream-coloured carpet. I gaze in horror at the mess. I knew kids were messy, snotty noses, chocolate fingers and worse. It hasn't even arrived yet and it's made a mess. I elbow my husband. He turns and blearily opens his eyes. Everything okay? I burst into tears. God, I'm all wet. He throws back the duvet and surveys the devastation. I think your waters have broken. Talk about stating the bleeding obvious. 
I find myself smiling despite the shock of waking up and drowning in a lake of amniotic fluid. Duh. I can't help myself. He gets out of bed and takes charge. My tummy cramps up and I let out a whimper. For the first time ever, I'm so thankful that I don't have to make any decisions. I have at least been organised. My hospital bag is packed, the itinerary and checklist is stuck on the fridge and my birth plan is in the folder at the ready. I had not anticipated having to clean up the waters of the Mona Dam. I climb out of bed, my feet squelching in the deep pile of my ruined carpet. I hope the rug doctor will get it clean. I'm tempted to fetch the vax from the garage when another pain grips me. I double over, clutching my side. That was unpleasant. I start to strip the bed. Bother, I'm gripped by another pain, and this one lasts longer. Colin walks in. What on earth do you think you're doing, he shouts. I think it's perfectly obvious, so I don't reply. I'm still trying to straighten up after that last wrenching pain. I find myself panting like they tell you to do in all those prenatal classes I insisted Colin and I attend. He hurries over and starts rubbing my back. That's nice. I whimper again as another contraction hits. I think you're in labour. Colin sounds shocked. Duh. Another pain greets me and I let out an expletive. My goofy husband grins. I don't think he's ever heard me swear. Don't you worry, everything's going to be fine. You really think the rug doctor will get the pink out of the carpet? I look up at him, hopefully. He laughs and nods. I'll sort it, but first we have to take a little trip to the hospital. Talk about stating the bleeding obvious. He grabs my pre-packed bag. Wait, I can't go like this. I look down in dismay at my sodden nighty. I need a bath. You're kidding me. Colin does not look impressed. We need to get you to the hospital. I'll find you a clean nighty. But I'm all sticky, I whine, and another pain grips, and I start to pant. I'll have a shower. Promise I'll be quick. Colin looks as if he's about to explode. We have not got time. You need to get to the hospital. I would have laughed, except another pain hit me, and it lasted longer. When I caught my breath, I disagreed. Rubbish. First babies take hours. Check with the midwife. Time the contractions. You'll see. I'm going for that shower. The hot water rained down on me and I leant against the wall, letting it soothe the ache in my back. I was nearly on my knees as the next contraction hit. Maybe Colin was right. Perhaps we ought to make tracks to the hospital. It was a bit of a drive. Colin knocked, then waltzed in. I was on my hands and knees now, moaning as another pain squeezed and I started to pant. He had the phone in his hand. Another one, yep. He had his mobile in his hand and was looking at his watch and then at me. I was about to ask what he was doing when another pain, and this time it really hurt. I gasped and wanted to cry. Yes, that was the next one. Yes, mm, I suppose about an hour? Well, she insisted on changing the bed, and then she wanted to vax the carpet. I tried to get to the car, but she insisted on a bath. No, no, she's not in the bath. She's in the shower. Oh, thank you. So, then we'll drive to the hospital? No. What do you mean, no? Colin walked out of the bathroom, leaving me panting on my hands and knees in the shower. Ooh, this was not good. I wanted pain relief, epidural, gas and air, knocking out with a blunt object, anything that would stop these pains. Colin was still talking on the phone. Ten minutes? I'll leave the door open. Come straight in. His head appeared round the bathroom door. How are you doing? I couldn't answer. I was too busy panting. Can I do anything? I was ready to scream. Have the baby for me. That would be a good start. I was never doing this again. The hot water wasn't so hot anymore. I wanted to turn it off, but I couldn't stand up. 
The water isn't very warm. Shall I turn it off for you? You look a bit cold. Of course I was cold. I was shivering. It was bleeding obvious. I nodded through chattering teeth. Colin reached over and switched off the water, then popped out and came back with some lovely warm towels. He must have got them from the airing cupboard. He wrapped them around me and in walked the midwife. Finally, I was tucked up in a nice clean bed, in a nice dry nighty, and holding a small warm bundle, lying fast asleep in my arms. Colin put his arms around my shoulders and kissed me. Look, we have a beautiful baby boy. Talk about stating the bleeding obvious. Intensive Care was written and is narrated by Sally Runham. Senior nurse Sharon O'Connor put on a new pair of latex gloves and picked up the polythene bag containing a vial from the hospital trolley. Her precious cargo contained saliva and mucus, habitats for the virus that she had swabbed from the mouth and nostrils of her dying patient and now growing exponentially in the tube. She placed the prized germs inside her scrubs by pushing the polybag into her commodious bra, two sizes too large, first removing stuffing on one side. She changed her clothing and left the hospital, passing the barriers without a hitch. Nurse O'Connor was at the forefront of disease control at the hospital, taking charge on her shifts and organising the battle for resources of testing kits, key equipment such as ventilators and personal protective equipment. She also provided daily updates on her ward's successfully discharged patients, those retained either on or off ventilators who still stood a chance of recovery, and the fear factor failures, those who had sadly lost their battle. No blame was attributed for the deaths, only praise for courageous staff tackling this pandemic. In this way, Nurse O'Connor was able to perfect her plan without hindrance. Sharon was very grateful that she worked only part-time at the hospital. Extra hours were on offer, of course, but Sharon had already taken a second job to make ends meet. She struggled to pay the mortgage, manage the housekeeping and feed and educate three clever children since her doctor husband Ian, a specialist in tropical diseases, had died in China some months before. She received a widow's pension, but this was much less than Ian's salary and the family no longer benefited from his lucrative private work. Going through his papers to sort finances and to let acquaintances know of his death, Sharon learned a great deal about Ian's contacts and the grateful patients he had treated at home and abroad. No one had been allowed to attend Ian's funeral, but some wanted to reward him for his exceptional bedside manner. Sharon thought she would follow most of these up sometime in the future, but there was one that had caught her eye straight away. Sharon had a second job as an agency nurse to the private Aspire Retirement Extra Care Complex in Brixton, now at the epicentre of the outbreak. Her contract entailed twice-weekly shifts where she took care to protect her own hygiene and that of its residents. Next day, refreshed from a night's rest, she went in empty-handed and donned her uniform and PPE in a room made available, only following slow asphyxiation of its resident, another victim of this pandemic. 
Sharon allocated the medication round, went from room to room, administering prescribed drugs. She took extra care where isolated unconscious patients lay, able to breathe only with mechanical assistance. Sometime in late afternoon, she reached her destination. She looked up and down the corridor, retrieved the polybag from her underwear and knocked. Hi, here are your meds, Nisha. She opened the door and administered tablets and eye drops. Nisha Patel had loved Ian, a man two decades her junior. Feelings first of gratitude, but then desire, overwhelmed her after this expert diagnosed a rare bacterium devouring her internal organs and saved her life. Sharon chatted to Nisha on her rounds at the Aspire. This sprightly, intelligent woman enjoyed supporting a well-reviewed care complex, freeing time to write her popular novels. Nisha was unaware of Sharon's relationship to Ian and did not even know he had died. Letters from his admirer, discovered by Sharon, had shown passionate love, expressed financially, beneficial to him, but also to his heirs. Two weeks later, Sharon had learnt of Nisha Patel's sad demise and wasn't surprised to receive a phone call from her solicitor. Senior Nurse O'Connor should have felt elated, but for one niggling worry, a temperature much higher than normal. The last sale of the season was written by Graham Emmett and is narrated by Kevin Daly. It was to be a sale to Aldering Field on Friday afternoon to pick up the last crew member that night, then down to Bordsea the following day for lunchtime, followed by Saturday night at the Ramshoulder Arms Inn, and back up at the Tide Mill in Woodbridge on the Sunday, to all being well, that was the plan anyway. Sitting at the end of the bar in the Ramshoulder Arms Inn was an old sea dog, who asked which yacht we were on, having seen our wet weather gear and life jackets. As we started talking, the subject came up about the history of the area. We all expected it to be about the development of radar at Bordsey Manor. But no. A tale of murder and a phantom Napoleonic skiff that appeared once a year on a certain day. The story went along the lines that a French man-of-war had gone aground on the notorious sandbanks in that area, in the fog, and broken up. Some of the Matelots had managed to abandon ship in a wooden longboat, only to be found by the local fishermen, who took it upon themselves to dispatch them, believing them to be spies. They cast the dead sailors off with the boat on fire, so that no trace could be found. At the end, he confessed that his ancestor had been one of the guilty fishermen. On that cheery note, we bade him good night and headed for the door, where we were greeted by a fog so thick you could barely see your hand in front of you. Finding the boat could be interesting. Safely back on board, an old oil lamp was lit to save the batteries. It gave a warming, flickering glow to the cabin. Well, that was an interesting piece of local history. I've not heard of that before. I wonder if there's any truth in it, I said, as we drank our Captain Morgan nightcap. The faint, slow, rhythmic sounds of oars going into the glassy still water could be heard in the distance. 
Someone must be looking for their yacht, I said. Then, a sudden chill entered the cabin, freezing the condensation on the insides of the windows. Then a bump on the side of the boat. At the same time, the oil lamp flickered and went out. Next, the sound of foreign voices, accompanied by splashing paddles as another returning crew tried to find their boat after a night ashore. That must have been them, said Geoffrey, and we all turned in for the night. The fog of the night before had turned to a light mist when the sun would burn off quickly. With no wind, it would mean motoring back up to the Tide Mill Marina in Woodbridge, and later that week, we heard on the local news that a body had been washed up on the shore a few miles down the coast. It had been slashed and hacked about. The only clues that the police had to go on were the charred remains of an old wooden longboat and rusting antique sailors' cutlasses of the Napoleonic era. They had identified him as an old fisherman who had been the last remaining descendant of the fisherman who had killed French sailors from a ship wrecked there 200 years before. Maybe there had been truth in that fisherman's tale, in the ramshold arms after all. The Sayers Return, written and narrated by Jean Fairburn and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. This poem was written tongue-in-cheek for a community arts festival celebrating the creative spirit of Dorothy L. Sayers in September 2017. Dorothy, a writer of detective stories, famously created Lord Peter Whimsey and taking the spirit aspect literally, Dorothy, her father and Lord Whimsey are spotted by the locals as they return to haunt the rectory and its gardens. The sayers, the gossips say, have returned to haunt the rectory, and no one knows why, except for Dorothy. The Reverend Sayers was spotted at first, kneeling in leaves and vegetable dirt, training pea runners to swoop, stoop and loop, straggling tendrils around circular hoops, and thirsting, bursting, swollen pea pods, so ripe for picking, exploding, they drop off cascading to earth in a vegetable waterfall, showering the ground with tiny green cannonballs. Next, the Reverend was spotted approaching the greenhouse to attend the bean runners starting to sprout, which tied to railings and long-handled rakes were fixed to bamboo canes with thin wooden stakes, making a framework for high-climbing shoots, which pulled up tightly were stretched to the roots. Harvest produce was left at the church door, to be nibbled by mice teeth, scored and clawed. But not the reverence, nothing there gnawed and poured. No, stored in his greenhouse, a temple of glass, his sunripe tomatoes cannot be surpassed. Dorothy sat talking to her mother in the kitchen while creating a canvas of violet and vermilion and penning a note to a man named Sweet William but tittle-tattling and taking tea and toast on the terrace, Dorothy was seen with that detective, Lord Peter Whimsey, a character she created by herself and for herself to make sure of her own happy ending.
The Red Bus, was written and is narrated by Felicity Radcliffe. An icy wind blasted across Old Town Square, driving clouds of snow into the faces of the children hurrying home from school. Jana clutched her school bag against her chest, trying in vain to stop her coat from falling open. Her mother had promised to replace the missing buttons as soon as she had enough money. In the meantime, the winter snow always won and the walk home from school chilled her to the bone every day. Thankfully, it took only 10 minutes to reach the tiny house she shared with her parents and grandfather. Jana pushed open the front door of her house. As usual, it was scarcely any warmer inside than it was outside in the street, but at least she could escape the snow and the wind. Her grandfather, a bag of bones whose body was barely discernible beneath his winter clothing, was asleep in his armchair and did not wake as she walked through the door. Jana thought it was best to leave him be. She would follow her usual routine and do her homework while she waited for her mother to come home and cook dinner. Jana carried her school bag into the bedroom she shared with her grandfather and settled down to her studies. She had offered repeatedly to help her mother with the cooking, but her mother had always refused. Education was a privilege that had been denied her, so she was determined that her daughter would not compromise her schoolwork by wasting her time boiling cabbage and potatoes. Homework began with a citizenship assignment. In that morning's lesson, the teacher had been telling them how much better life was now that the war was over, the Nazis had been defeated and the new government, called the People's Democracy, had been established in Prague, some 50 kilometres to the south. To Jana, though, life hardly seemed any different from the way it was before the war ended three years previously. Food and fuel were as scarce as ever, and her parents still had to work so hard just to survive. Nevertheless, Jana thought, her family was more fortunate than many others. Her hometown of Mlada Boleslav, or MB for short, was where Skoda cars were manufactured, and the factory provided jobs for nearly every adult who was fit enough to work. Her father was on the production line for the new 1101 series, which had been launched earlier that year. He took real pride in his work, despite his modest wages. Her mother's job, cleaning offices in the main administration building, was monotonous and poorly paid, but at least it supplemented her father's income. At 13, Jana understood that there were people in other parts of Czechoslovakia who were suffering far more than them. It just didn't feel that way sometimes, especially in midwinter. Thankfully, there was not much homework that night. Jana was one of the brightest in her class, so she finished it quite quickly and had some time to herself, which was a rare luxury. She put away her school books and took down a tin box from the shelf above her bed. A thin layer of dust had settled on the lid as she had not had time to look inside it for a while. Carefully, she brushed the dust away with the sleeve of her sweater so that the picture on the lid was clearly visible once again. The picture showed a big red bus. Her uncle Pavel, 
who gave her the box, had told her that buses like these could be found in London, the capital of England. Yana dreamed of going to London one day and seeing these shining scarlet buses for herself. Realistically, she knew that this was unlikely to happen, but her uncle had taught her never to let go of her dreams, as they were precious. When he gave her the tin, which was originally full of biscuits, he smiled and said that he knew that the biscuits would not last long, but that her dreams belonged to her and would last forever. Fill your tin box with your dreams, Yana, then hold on to them no matter what. Yana did as he said. Into the tin went a locket on a silk ribbon given to her by her father, plus notes from friends, pictures cut from newspapers and poems that she scribbled on scraps of paper. Over the years she filled the tin with verse. Some of the ink was smudged with tears after Uncle Pavel was killed in the war, but still she kept on writing. That night, before dinner, she added another short poem to her collection. Then she closed the lid and placed the tin back on the shelf. Carolina and her husband, Jose, were so excited to be moving into their new home on the outskirts of MB. Carolina's recent promotion to senior marketing manager at Skoda meant that they could just about afford the mortgage. Money will be tight for a couple of years, but it will be worth it. The unpacking seemed to take forever. Who knew that they had so much stuff? On the, day, on the evening of day two, they finally got down to the last few cardboard boxes. Jose prized open one box and lifted the contents out one by one. Carolina, do you really need to keep this old tin? It's pretty beaten up. Should I throw it out? Carolina glanced at her husband and shook her head emphatically. No, leave that one. My grandmother gave it to me just before she died. It has a lot of sentimental value. Of course. Jose came from a large family in Valencia, so he understood the importance of family ties. Carolina looked at the battered image of the Red London bus on the tin lid. I'm glad you uncovered that, she said eventually. You've given me an idea. The following Sunday, after she had finished packing her suitcase, Carolina searched through the contents of the tin box. She picked out a small locket dangling from a frayed, faded ribbon, plus a short poem on a scrap of paper. She folded the paper into a tiny square, placed it inside the locket and snapped the cover shut. Then she dropped the locket into her suitcase. The sign outside the conference centre was written in letters that were taller than Carolina herself. Skoda 2020, it proclaimed. As she walked inside, Carolina felt proud to be helping to showcase the new generation of Skoda vehicles at the company's London conference. As she scanned the room, though, she spotted numerous things that needed to be fixed before the conference started at nine o'clock. Time to get to work. On the evening before she was due to fly home, Carolina managed to get an hour to herself. She rushed into the tube station opposite her hotel and headed south on the Northern Line. She had been to London a few times now and was getting the hang of the tube network which had seemed so perplexing to her on her first visit. 
Ten minutes later, she got off the bank, thinking that there were bound to be plenty of buses around there. She was right. Carolina stood at a bus stop near Bank Tube Station and got on the first bus that came along. As it pulled away, she found a seat on one of the long seats at the back, facing inwards. She peered anxiously out of the window, trying to memorise the route so she could retrace her steps after she got off. Then she reached into her pocket and removed the locket. Reaching up, she quickly tied the ribbon around the grab rail, then pressed the bell and stood up, ready to get, to get off at the next stop. What are you doing? The voice came from a man sitting next to her. Sorry, Carolina said. You must think me rather stupid. The locket belonged to my grandmother. She dreamed of coming to London, but she could not. It was not allowed back then. In fact, she never left Czechoslovakia, as it used to be called. She's dead now, but I'd like to make her dream come true, in a small way. I don't think you're stupid, the man said. It's a lovely thing to do. Thank you. Carolina smiled at the man, then got off the bus. For the next two stops, the man wondered what to do. Eventually, he untied the locket from the grab rail, opened it and looked inside. The words on the scrap of paper made no sense at all, so he took the locket and its contents with him to his office. Alex, do you know what language this is written in? Looks like an Eastern European language, boss, but I couldn't tell you which one. Polish, maybe? Hang on, let me Google it. I'll find out for you. Ten minutes later, Alex reappeared at the man's desk. Mystery solved, he exclaimed proudly. It's Czech. Do you want me to get it translated? If so, you could ask Philip in accounts. He's originally from the Czech Republic. He should be able to translate it for you in seconds, as it's so short. When Philip translated the poem into English, the man's eyes filled with tears. He picked up his phone and made a few calls. Most of the people rushing along the London streets did not notice the little poem that appears on the side of so many buses over the next few weeks. They were too wrapped up in their own concerns for the words to register. A few of them did notice, though. The words of the short poem touched them and their lives, if only for a moment. The poem goes like this. My dreams are just like little birds, with golden clips upon each wing. I know that they cannot take flight, but oh, the songs that they can sing. Unknown author, Czechoslovakia, 1948. Carolina never found out about the poem on the side of the London bus, but that didn't really matter. It was Jana's dream, after all. He comes back was written by Anne Wingfield and is narrated by Roger Ems. Hi, Smart's the name. Art Smart, the local village undertaker, generally known as Smart Art, is about, which is natural enough in a job like mine. Aye, I think you can safely say there's not a thing goes on around here that I don't know about. Walking almanac I am. Next to me day job, keeping an eye on the past's my line, and there's no better place in a graveyard for that. 
I've just come back from there, as a matter of fact. The one over the fells by pit stop top. It's cold up there, an isolated spot. Chilled to the bone I am and all. Why, man, that wind's so keen it'd cut a body in two soon as Luke. Seen Billy Blenkinsop off today. I have, and none too soon in my book. He's a lot to answer for, does that man. I only did the necessaries like, left Reverend Mulhall to do the rest. Not that I ever was one for funeral teas at the best of times, but hell had freeze over before I sat down with a blanked sop. I called in on my father instead to tend his grave and have a chat. Not that I got a chance to do that. No, I couldn't get a word in edgewise, not once my mother got going. Took centre stage, straight off she did. Reeled me back to the night my father died, the minute I mentioned Billy Blenkinsop's demise. I say, Hinny, have you seen your dad? He's late home for his shift. Nip up to the allotment and see if he's called there on his way home from pit. Hold on, there's the buzzer. Why, it's not as I thought. Put a few more coals on the fire. We'll have to keep his bathwater hot. Here it goes again. I could have sworn I heard it before. I'm away into the yard to listen. Leave the door. Oh, mercy me, it keeps buzzing and buzzing. Pray God your daddy's safe. Oh, come on, let's away to the pit top. Fetch our coats, Hinny. Put your muffler on. We'll be in for a very long wait. Come on, Hinny. Run as fast as you can. I know your legs are tired, but you'll have to keep up with your ma'am. Hush now. Stop crying. You don't want your dad to see you with a face like that. Push away to the front, Henny. We'll no learn nothing stood here. What's that they say? All the men out, save three. Well, there's little comfort in that for Betty Blinkinsop, Bella Headley and me. Chin up, Henny. There's nothing for it but to keep watch until morning. Wait for the rescue to start. That and pray like I and sing. Sing up, bonnie lad. If your dad hears, he'll take heart. Hold on a minute. Do my eyes deceive me? See that shadow skulking in the dark? Looks like Billy Blankensop. Why, he gave me such a start. Heaven help us. He's never climbed the shaft and left your dad and Ted Headley behind. He knows what'll happen if the cage moves. Oh, my God, I think I'll go out of my mind. Come on, Henny, I'm off. There's not a chance in hell of your dad coming home tonight and this'll be no place for a bairn to, to be once the truth gets out. Anger born of grief is not a pretty sight. Mark my words. Billy Blenkinsop's in for a rough ride. Aye, he'll live to rue the day saved his own neck. Forever shunned and shamed, he'll long for death and his family will bear the stigma until the day he dies. But you, Henny... You can hold your head up high. Folk will never forget your dad or the way he died. So, think on. You can remember him with pride. Off you go, Hinnies. Clear a path for your ma'am. That's right. Go canny, though. Remember I'm following behind. Oh, I know folk are pushing and shoving, but there'll be worse to come before the night's out. Just keep going. I forward and onward, bonny lad... And mind what I say, no matter what happens, don't look back. Why? 
Well, that's for me to know and you to find out. Now, looking back, I could see my mother was right. About Billy Blenkinsop, that is. His funeral today is evidence of that. Family only. Stood at his graveside. Well, them and Herbie Hobson-like. That man would do anything for a free meal and a pint. But I've never rightly understood why she insisted I didn't look back that night. Or what it was she knew that I had to find out. I mean to say, surely the best way to learn about life is to rake back over the past. To keep looking back. Well, that temper with experience and a bit of insight like. Aye, and only in relaying the day's events to you now do I see what my mother was talking about. For I'd look back that day. The lasting memory of my father would have been a buzzer blowing, abuse hurling, people wailing, black colders clawing, and him being stretched out of the shaft. Whereas the father I'll call to mind is the one I saw that last time, the one who came striding across the backyard, pit boots striking the cobbles as he walked, clothes stiff and black with face and hands to match, calling out, I go, and I come back. The one whose wizened black flushed pink and was young again when the water turned black as he bathed. The one whose sweet tenor voice raised and sang, Where you walk? To my mother, as she warmed his towels at the fireside. I'm glad, and I thank my mother, that this is the father I remember. When, eternally, in reprise, he comes back. The Recurring Dream was written by Isabel Cook and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. I sat on the railway carriage looking out at the scenery, green fields spread out like a patchwork quilt. The sun shone relentlessly into our carriage as my sister and I, holding our gloved hands, excitedly talked. I awoke with a start. The dream had been so vivid. I was about the same age as the girl in my dream. I felt sure I was the younger of the girls. We were dressed in three-quarter length blue dresses and wore white gloves. A boater sat upon our heads with a blue ribbon around it. I was wide awake and remembered every detail of the dream. I even felt the movement of the railway carriage. It was so real. A few nights later, I had the same dream, only this time it was more detailed. I was sitting with my sister in the carriage. We were alone. The carriage was an enclosed compartment with a sliding door, which opened into a corridor. I remember that two people walked past our carriage along the corridor, and one of them stopped and walked in. It was a woman dressed in black. She looked cross and formidable. Thankfully, she did not enter, but walked on by. The countryside was giving way to a more hilly outlook, and in the distance we were sure it was the sea we were looking at, and not the sky. My sister was scolding me a little. I had removed my boater and placed it on the seat, but she made me put it back on again, which I begrudgingly did. We sat in silence looking out of the window, when suddenly the track was level with the seashore. We both reacted in an animated state looking at the sea. Suddenly it all went black. 
I awake as before remembering everything. The dream recurred for many years. It was always the same. As I grew older, I decided to research stretches of the track where they were parallel to the coastline. There was one stretch in particular that stood out. In the 30s, there had been a catastrophe rail crash leading to loss of life. My real-life sister and I booked a ticket to travel on that route and set out on our journey. We sat in silence a good part of the time and I was able to look out at the countryside. The scene suddenly changed and we were level with the sea. I felt a chill, as if someone had walked over my grave. This was my dream, or was it a memory of a previous life? I researched the churchyards near the site of the crash and there was one gravestone which stood out. It was of two sisters, Emily and Agnes Brothelhurst, who had been killed in the fatal rail crash. Emily was 11 years of age and Agnes was 15. I stood for a long time looking at the gravestone. It was evening when I finally walked away. I researched further into the girls' names and discovered that they had lived about 29 miles away in a small village. They were from an affluent family. I discovered an elderly relation nearby, so rang and they agreed to see me. Great Aunt Petunia was a severe-looking woman, but her voice was totally different and she was very friendly. She opened the door of her cottage with difficulty. She invited me in and asked me to sit. I revealed my interest in the two girls and to my delight, Aunt Petunia said that she had some old family photos. She produced a family photo album and put her glasses on that sat upon her head. She flicked through the pages, then stopped. She then looked at me, then back at the photo she had been looking at. You bear an uncanny resemblance to Emily, Aunt Petunia said, showing me the photograph. The photo was in black and white and a little faded, but she was correct. There was a resemblance between Emily and myself. I shuddered. Had I remembered a previous life? I sat looking at the photograph for a long time, and the girls looked back at me. I suddenly felt I had outstayed my welcome, so stood up to leave. Great Aunt Petuni removed a photo and gave it to me. After that visit, although there were many others, I did not have the recurring dream again. It was as if a ghost had been laid to rest. I carry the photo of Emily and Agnes with me in my bag and they remain in my thoughts constantly. Sometimes I'm not sure if it's just my imagination. I can hear the young girls laughing and I feel a faint breeze as someone runs past me.